You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Mass over matter in a mass age, science and medicine. We couldn't have two better speakers than Martin Rees and Mark Walpert. Um, they don't really need any introduction. Welcome. Been there since 2003, revolutionized the place. Um, building one of the greatest uh, centers of combined scientific research uh, yet uh, pioneered anywhere in Western Europe. And uh, Martin Rees, Astronomer Royal, Master of Trinity, winner of the Templeton Prize this last year, and just an exceptional person and an exceptional scientist. Um, last month, oh, before I start, how many people in here have a science degree? Five, six, six, keep your hands right up, seven, don't be bashful. Eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven out of roughly a hundred. Eight, eight out of roughly a hundred. Eight out of a hundred. So there's quite, we've all got a learning experience, bar eight of us. Um, I'd just like to, to, to cushion this in, in one thing that I wanted to tell you, which was last month I went to CERN to see the Hadron Super Collider. I am not of a scientific disposition. You arrive and it looks like a US airbase of some antiquity. You then go below ground where it's been switched off because the Geneva electricity supply can't take the load during the winter months. So the two key winter months, it's, 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 uh, it's maintained. And what you see is something absolutely unbelievable, not just physically, but also in terms of the human spirit. Because within CERN, there's first of all um, the 27-kilometer tunnel, which is not very interesting, looks vaguely like a tube tunnel. There is this massive magnet, which encases the beam, which goes right round the 27 kilometers. And then where the collision occurs, there is this cathedral-sized detector. And the mistress of the detector is an Italian professor, and at the age of 19, she had to make the decision between being a concert pianist and a particle physicist. And she chose the particle physicist, although she is as mesmerized by the mathematics of Bach's constructions as she is by particle physics. And that, in a way, speaks of the people you meet there. There are 1,100, maybe rather less now, but about 1,000 PhDs in CERN with, from 37 different countries. Um, it's an unbelievable coming together of the human spirit to find out about mass and what informs it. And we'll return to that. But mass is our theme, and at some point it will connect somewhere down the line with the ecology of the soul. That's our enterprise today, is to take us from these two extraordinary boffins uh, and, and, their, and their amazing take on science to the ecology of the soul. Now, I'm going to start with you, Martin. You've got three or four minutes just to talk to us about what's on the top of your head. Okay, without hesitation, deviation or repetition. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, well, first, uh, to erase two misperceptions. First, I'm not an astrologer. I'm an astronomer, uh, so don't expect any, don't expect any horoscopes. 
Um, and secondly, uh, you may feel that an astronomer who thinks about huge expanses in space of, um, of time is very sort of serene in the everyday world. But anything but. Uh, I'm not, and my colleagues fret just as much about what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, and next year as anyone else. And I'll come back in a moment to a special take on that. Everyone's familiar that uh, the Earth has been around for billions of years, and unless you're a creationist in Kansas or somewhere like that, you know that we are the outcome of four billion years of evolution. But what we try to do in astronomy <coughs> is to go back further than... Uh, Darwin's simple beginning and try and understand where the Earth came from and where the atoms came from that made the Earth and the Sun. And we've made huge progress. We've been able to trace things back to some mysterious, dense beginning, the so-called Big Bang that happened about 13 and a half billion years ago. We've also learnt that the universe is utterly vast. I mean, everyone knows that, but there are uh, in our galaxy, the Milky Way, 100 billion stars. If we look out with our telescopes, we see 100 billion galaxies, each like our own Milky Way. And one exciting idea, which is still speculation, is that perhaps our Big Bang is not the only one. There may be many universes, the outcome of many Big Bangs. So we have this vast panorama. And what's amazing is that we can understand quite a bit of it on the basis of the um, laws of nature that we can test in the lab. Atoms out there in distant galaxies behave just like atoms here on Earth in the lab. Otherwise, the universe would be anarchic and we would make no progress. The other thing which is amazing is that we've made such progress in understanding this because our brains haven't changed very much since our ancestors roamed the African savanna a few hundred thousand years ago. But we can understand the mysteries of the quantum and the cosmos to a surprising extent. There may be some things we never understand, but we've got quite a long way. Well, I can't tell you about all the things we've learnt, um, but I will tell you one thing which has made the night sky much more interesting. And that's that when we look up at the sky, we now realise that the stars aren't just twinkling points of light. They are all suns, like our own sun, and moreover they are, most of them, orbited by retinues of planets, just as the Sun is orbited by the Earth and the other familiar planets. This has been learnt just in the last few years, that uh, most stars have planets around, and we can infer something about these planets, how big they are, how long their year would be if you were living on them. But, of course, that raises a fascinating question, is there any life on those? And there we have no idea. This is a challenge for the 21st century. Uh, we don't know how likely it is. We don't even know how life began on the Earth. And I should put in some preemptive modesty for my uh, com companion here, which is that biologists are much harder subjects than particle physics or astronomy, because the very small and the very large are challenging, but the very complicated is even more challenging still. That's why biology is the hardest subject, and that's why we don't understand how life began on Earth, and we don't understand how life might have begun elsewhere in the universe and whether it's out there. Well, just to finish with, let me just say why uh, I think astronomers bring a slightly different perspective to the world's problems. Firstly, they're aware of a vast future. Most people who are familiar with the idea that we are the outcome of this four billion years of evolution, somehow think that we humans are the culmination, we're the end point. 
But no astronomer could believe that. Because we all know that the Earth is going to go on for another five billion years. It existed for 45 million centuries. It'll go on for another 50 or 60 million centuries more. And so post-human evolution here on Earth and far beyond is going to be far more wonderful than uh, what happened up to now. So we are maybe an early stage in the uh, development of complexity in the cosmos. We are not the culmination. I think no astronomer could believe otherwise. But to uh, focus now in on uh, here and now, there is a reason, I think, why uh, astronomers do bring a special perspective on the present day and the present century. And that's because even though the Earth has existed for 45 million centuries, this one is special. It's the first one where one species, namely ours, can determine the future. And by mishandling that future can foreclose all this immense potential. So it is a unique century in the 45 million have elapsed up till now um, and can determine not just what happens to us but can in principle determine what might happen thereafter in the millennia and millions of years ahead. And that's why uh, we have an extra perspective and perhaps an extra motive over and above the uh, ordinary one of caring about our immediate uh, descendants and our immediate uh, um, compatriots about what happens now. And I think when we talk about what's going to happen in the next decade and what the opportunities and threats are that are posed by science, then I think it helps to look at things in this new perspective and to realize that we've learned an immense amount, but this means that we have more power for good or ill than we had in the past. And also that we are just at the beginning. Humanity is the beginning of cosmic evolution and we are still at the beginning of our understanding. So I'll stop there. And Mark. You have the power for good or ill. Yes, I, I must confess I've rather torn up in my head what I was going to say. And, and it, it was the last half hour that made me do it, actually. Because um, I, I think we should explore what Satish Kumar was saying. But, I mean, ultimately, science is about explaining and understanding things but there are an awful lot of things that we're a long way from understanding. And Martin is absolutely right about the complexity of biology, but ultimately I think that we are all physics. It's just that the jump from understanding physics to understanding how even a string of amino acids, the 20 amino acids that make up all of the proteins on our body, we're still not really capable of sufficiently detailed understanding to know how a protein will fold into the complex structure of insulin or anything else. We can actually describe it. We can use the technique of crystallography. And in fact, my tie is actually the crystal structure of the um, uh, insulin molecule, but leave that aside. Um, so, so we can actually analyze it, but we can't predict it. We don't know enough about the physics and the chemistry to be able to work out, although we're getting near, there's a competition, a protein folding competition each year, where people who've determined some crystal structures, they don't publish them, they keep it secret. And this isn't about open science or otherwise, it's actually about seeing whether a, a community that works on protein folding can take those sequences 
and predict what the structure actually is so you can test them against the, the, the correct answer. Um, and the proteins are one thing, but they all come together in machineries that make up our cells, and our cells are aggregated in tissues and organs, and our organs are aggregated to make an organism. So we are an extraordinary distance from understanding. But the question is, I think coming back to Satish's point, is whether there is something beyond science that is needed to explain the sorts of things that we've appreciated in the last half hour. So the beauty of language and poetry. The journey that you made across India and Europe to the United States in pursuit of human ideals. The tap dance and then actually the understanding of grief. Those are all profoundly human emotions. But the question is, do we need something more than science to ultimately explain that? And that's where, frankly, I think we get into something that is, it becomes to some extent a matter of belief because it can't be empirically explored, which is whether there is something more. And it takes us back to what I was saying earlier today, which is that the brain is, I think, the sort of final biological frontier of complexity. Our brains are extraordinarily complicated, and uh, there is a project at the moment called the Human Connectome Project. And the idea of that is to map every neuron and all its projections, and every neuron or nerve cell has many spikes and connects with many other cells. And at each of the junctions between one nerve cell and another nerve cell, there are lots of neurotransmitters, which are the little chemical packages that send signals from one nerve cell to another. And could we, by describing the human connectome, by having, as it were, the, the, the metaphor is the Human Genome Project, though it's actually very different from the human genome, if we had a complete description of that, would we know how the brain works? And the answer to that is no. So there is this enormously complicated challenge. But I would submit, before I shut up, that even if we understand all that, I think we will be a long way from understanding all of the human emotions that we each have on a day-to-day -day basis. But does the fact that we can't explain it require an addition, additional heavenly explanation? I don't think so, because that in itself begs another set of questions. So science is not actually an inhumane subject in any sense at all, and I think your example of the Large Hadron physicist who's a pianist, that's very common. Actually, lots of scientists are deeply involved in the arts. But science is about explaining more than humanity, and I thought you made the very good point, Martin, that you know, we are, there's nothing superior, lots of people have said it, there's nothing superior about humans, whether or not there are many more advanced species on other planetary systems, we simply don't know. It seems likely, statistically, that there are, actually, but we don't know. So I suppose my contention is, I think we have extraordinary complexity, but ultimately I think it probably can all ex be explained by physics. It's just we're a long way from being able to do it. <laughs> uh, Satish didn't go so far as to introduce heavenly, but he did question the possibility that trees, the soil, and other elements of our lives have souls. 
Well, I, 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 and so what is a soul? That's, you know, that's got to be the question. Well, is it something we've got and nothing else has got? Um, well, do we have a soul? I'm not sure that we do. I think it's a, a description of something that we don't understand. It's, a, it's, a, it's saying that there's something within us that we don't understand and we're going to call it a soul. Um, in that sense, I think lots of species have things in them that we don't understand, but I don't think I'd call it a soul. But, I mean, Martin. Yes. Would you call it a soul, Martin? Well, I wouldn't quite understand how to use the word, yes. but I would like to perhaps... Uh, be slightly less hard line than, uh, Mark, <laughs> was, than Mark was um, in his uh, reductionist sense. I want to say, first of all, um, uh, it may be that there are many things that our human brains won't understand. A chimpanzee can't understand quantum theory, and there's no particular reason why our brains should be matched towards all aspects of reality. So there may be many things that are just beyond us and will have to await post-humans. But uh, when you said that everything is, in a sense, physics, um, that is true in a sense, but only in a boring sense, I think. Yes. It's, true, it's true that um, perhaps uh, uh, there's a fundamental equation called Schrodinger's equation, which all atoms obey, and it's true that everything we suspect is a solution of Schrodinger's equation. But that's not a useful thing to know, because if you look at all the sciences, you could put them in a sort of hierarchy. There's, um, uh, physics at the bottom, then chemistry, then cell biology, um, then uh, population biology and social science, um, and think of it as a level of a building, you know, and uh, uh, the, those complex answers are on the highest floors, and the economists right up in the penthouse at the top. <laughs> there. Um, and, um, uh, but, but, the, but the point is that each of those sciences has its own irreducible concept. It explains things in different ways. Uh, when we are trying to explain how a bird uh, finds its way back um, to the nest, etc., um, and why it does that. We don't think in terms of physics. We have our own con concepts. And to take another simpler example, uh, when um, uh, people interested in, uh, um, in fluids try to understand um, why waves break, why flows go turbulent, etc., um, they don't care that water's H2O. They treat it as a continuum. And so they do mathematics, but it doesn't matter what the atomic structure is. So for each science, you have the appropriate concepts. You don't need to reduce it. So although it may be true that everything is physics, um, that's not really a useful kind of explanation. Uh, we want an explanation of everything on its own terms, um, animal behavior in terms of one language, and human behavior, of course, and whether we have a soul in artistry um, on a different level. Um, it's not useful to reduce it, even if in principle uh, we are obeying Schrodinger's equation. It's not useful to do it that way. Uh, Mark, uh, um, I, I, I want to go back to actually how Martin closed his offering in the first place and uh, ask you, very recently we've had... I was told as a kid doing biology O-level that uh, women produced the eggs they were ever going to have. They were in the system. Now we're told that it's possible to extract um, an ovary and grow new eggs that weren't there to begin with through um, um, you know, cellular mm -hmm. activity. Um, so do you share Martin's view that we're in a period in which we could, from your perspective, affect the next... 45 million centuries. Um, I think we can do that without worrying about whether you... I mean, to, to be honest, I think we're not far off being able to take a cell from our skin and turning that into a baby if we wanted to. 
but do I think that that's the danger to our planet? Absolutely not. I think the danger to our planet is much more the point that I've heard you make before, Martin, which is that actually if you look back at the Earth, you now see an Earth which is surrounded by bits of metal flying around at enormous speeds. I mean, it seems to me that without any um, uh, additional um, uh, scientific endeavour of that sort, we have the potential to, to wreck our natural environment. Well, and leaving the bits of metal to Martin, which I'll get him to address... Uh, you're saying that if you leave it to the biologists and the people who are safely inside the lab pioneering new medical procedures, new drugs, new, new everything, as far as one can tell, I mean, um, uh, microbiotic uh, arms, legs, prosthetics, and one sort of another, etc., etc., is there any danger in what you're doing uh, in terms of the next 45 So, So, so you're asking the question as to where, whether... By biological manipulation, by genetic manipulation, we might actually go, yes. Um, So I think that's immensely unlikely, and I think that we shouldn't do it. So there are choices to be made. But we had Mengele. Um, We did indeed, and and as I said earlier today, we can regulate what happens in the United Kingdom. We can't regulate what happens in many other countries. Um, I think that the capacity of as it were, the biologist to improve on the complexity of nature is actually quite limited. So when people talk about uh, bioterrorism and designer organisms, well, organisms divide pretty effectively themselves and natural selection means that actually they've been adapted by the most efficient mechanism properly. So actually doing better than nature is very difficult. I think I understood on farming today that the lamb virus is going to destroy itself. Um, whether it destroys itself. I mean, infections do... Because the way we've evolved, we've evolved in parallel with infections, the reason that we're successful is that we have an immune system that is diverse. So if any new infection comes out, maybe 80% 80 people in this room will, to take an extreme case, die. Maybe even 90. But actually there'll be sufficient diversity that probably 1 or 2 or 10 or 50, or in most cases 99 will survive. So I think we're quite resilient, and we wouldn't be here if we hadn't been quite resilient. Um, But is there a danger of a species wipeout due to an infection? It is always theoretically possible, though I think unlikely. But, I mean, to go back to your question, I think you're probably thinking about the mitochondrial Mm. DNA story. Um, And we did talk about that earlier today. Um, Are there genetic manipulations which could prevent very unpleasant, life-threatening disease being passed on to future generations. Yes, there are examples of that. Are we on the threshold of being able to prevent mitochondrial disease by really rather simple technology? Yes. Should we do it? A matter for society to debate, not a matter for scientists to do. A matter for Martin in the House of Lords and his colleagues and in the House of Parliament and... There is going to be a public consultation on this very issue, which is going to be launched shortly. Should we all contribute to the decision? Absolutely, yes. Um, (coughs) Is there a slippery slope? Yes, but actually it's not that slippery, and one probably just needs good shoes, not even crampons, to stop going down it. Um, So do I think we're on the threshold of 
biologists mucking up the human and changing the course of evolution, I doubt it. I'm much more worried about the stuff that Martin talks about in terms of what we're capable of doing at the moment. And I, and I would say, again, going back to something that Satish says, that I do think, again, you have to look at humans as part of an ecosystem. Um, the pollinating insect, if we lose our bees and other pollinating insects, we are in big trouble. There are all those little things that are out there that pollinate plants that affect our food crops, which are hugely important to the ecosystem as a whole. And you've only got to look anywhere to see how much we've been mucking around with our ecosystems. So I think we're doing, I think there's lots of dangerous stuff going on, but well, I don't think much of it's actually in the, the laboratory of the biologists, the medical scientists who are trying to discover and prevent disease. Both of you are engaged in such uplifting activity that I don't want to stay in the valley of the shadow of death for long. <laughs> but having told 80 of us that we're on the way out anyway, <laughs> um, I, I, I think I'd better resolve at least the, your pretty, pretty dire warning that we have got this period where we can endanger the next 45 million years of human existence. Yes. Well, I don't think we wipe ourselves out completely, but I think there is a risk of setbacks. And uh, I do worry about the misuse of uh, bio, biological knowledge because um, unlike um, the knowledge and the equipment needed to build a nuclear weapon, uh, this is dual-use technology, fairly small scale, and uh, it's going to be impossible to uh, uh, have enough surveillance, as it, even if we were prepared to tolerate it, to prevent uh, the kind of people with the mindset of those who now design computer viruses from uh, tinkering with real viruses and things like that. So I am worried about this, just as I'm worried about uh, um, uh, the uh, instability that we are in in our ever more interconnected world where we depend on computer networks for uh, air traffic control, a financial system, etc. I think we are vulnerable to uh, severe uh, setbacks. Um, I, I think... Um, Does that leave you sympathetic, therefore, to the FBI arresting a 15-year-old brilliant hacker? Um, uh, it, it, it doesn't really, and I think the one um, uh, upside of, of, of this concern is that uh, uh, in the generation of uh, tweeting and everything like that, then everyone's watching each other. And uh, it doesn't need the uh, FBI or Big Brother to watch us because uh, um, any uh, young person who goes offline for a few hours is uh, suspicious. And I think that is actually um, going, to, going to make it somewhat harder for people to do these kind of things that concern us. But I think if we look at the uh, concerns we have, I mean, there's a greater empowerment of individuals and... Uh, uh, and there will be people like the old village idiots, but they're now global village idiots who have a global range in the global village, as it were. And that's a real uh, concern. Um, and I, I think also we've got to bear in mind that not only uh, are we in danger from highly empowered individuals, but um, again, as regards to what Mark was saying about the ecology, um, there are more of us in the world, 7 billion now, 9 billion by mid-century, and each of us is more demanding of resources and energy, etc. We are already uh, using about uh, a third of the biosphere for human use. 
um, and this is clearly having an effect. And I think we have to be concerned about these things. Nothing, I think, is going to wipe us all out. That's very unlikely. But a setback to uh, uh, the kind of progress we optimistically hope for uh, is perhaps not that unlikely, and that's what does scare me a bit. How do you, sorry, no, I just, want, I just want to come back. What I would have said until very recently is that, the, that we need to worry much more about whether one of those vials of smallpox still exists and whether in a lawless Russia someone might get hold. Because I, actually, as I say, evolution has done pretty well in terms of making dangerous organisms. But, but where I think I've slightly changed my mind, and there's an interesting debate at the moment, is that scientists investigating the bird flu virus... And, of course, there's been a lot of publicity about the bird flu virus and whether it was going to come and kill us all. Um, and, of course, everyone knew that the next flu virus pandemic would come from Southeast Asia because they always have done, but it didn't. It actually came from Mexico, which shows you know, the predictive power of biologists. But, but leaving that aside, people have been trying to explore what would it take for a bird flu virus to start infecting humans or other species. And they have discovered some of the amino acid changes that would make it very dangerous. And there's an interesting debate, an important debate going on now, because the scientists submitted this in the normal way to a scientific journals for peer review. And the American government said, we do not want you to publish this. And that's a very interesting discussion. And the reflex response in the scientific community is to be said, you can't do this to us. We need this information. It's important for developing vaccines and everything else. And I have to say, that's where I have a bit of sympathy with what Martin's just been saying, which is, I'm not sure I agree. I think there is an argument for not publishing that openly. Um, will it prevent that knowledge leaking out at some point? No, it won't. But will it delay it? Probably yes. But I think it's an extremely interesting tension. And if I can just take it a well, second... Well, we're full of arts people and quite a lot of media people. How many people think it should be published? <laughs> Derek, you're on your own. Yes. Uh, two, three. But, uh, but yeah. I mean, if you, if you talk to a community of flu virologists, you'll get, I suspect, quite a lot of hands up. But, but the other side of the coin is that when bird flu was... And I don't think we should... Any of us feel reassured, actually. It's still a very dangerous virus... When a human does get infected, it has about a 60 or 70% mortality. And I have colleagues that the Work and Trust supports in Vietnam who work on bird flu. But when it was about, and when new flu sequences, were flus were coming out, the scientific community says we must know what these are, because if we want to prepare the best vaccine, we need to know what the flu vaccine, what the flu viruses in circulation are. And there were various countries, in, particularly in Southeast Asia, who said, we don't want to tell you our flu virus sequences, because if we tell you, you'll make vaccines and drugs, and we won't get them. And so you've got, and, and I think they had a reasonable case, actually. So on the one hand, you've got this tremendous pressure for openness, which is right, because why would one not we were talking earlier today about getting the human genome into the public domain. There are lots of bacterial species. Everyone puts it out. When a pathogen comes along which could kill lots of people, it then gets very bizarre if you say, well, we're not going to put this out. So I think we've got these two opposing pressures in science at the moment. One is for openness, and there's no doubt that discovery flourishes in an open environment. And then we have this, 
And you can just see the reaction now in those countries that said we didn't want our flu, vac- our flu virus sequenced out. So now they discover something and they won't tell us. So this it's very, very complicated. But this is also very interesting because you have an anxiety essentially about the rogue. Yeah. And Martin, who I thought was talking about the rogue, is actually talking about the organic destruction of the planet, not an Iran. Well, I'm talking about the rogue whose impact could be global and serious. So are you talking about an Iran? Um, no, I may be talking about some, some American kid in the garage. Right. Yes. But, I mean, what about... You know, I mean, here we are living in the midst of the most ridiculous verbal warfare mm-hmm. centred on mm-hmm. whether or not a nation is going to develop something which yes, yes. other nations have developed and right, not yes, used. Yes. Is it a thing that concerns you? Is it being handled right? from a scientific point of view? The, the, the Iranian yeah. war. Um, how do you look at it? How do I look at that episode? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, cl- clearly the, the issues are entirely political. I mean, one is concerned about the uh, Iranian bomb because of the, uh, the rhetoric used yeah. in Iran, etc. Um, the, uh, uh, the technology, of course, is 50 years old, um, and uh, many nations we know could develop a bomb, and that's why the proliferation agenda is so important in uh, in that the more nations that have it, uh, the greater the risk of uh, um, some sort of error leading to some runaway nuclear... Uh, so however badly handled, uh, the fact is the instruments exist to sort of discuss it in the public place. You're concerned about the rogue that is below the radar and is not a state <laughs> operative. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm concerned because the, the kind of things that uh, um, are involved in uh, tinkering with the influenza virus uh, are things that could be done by some lone rogue. Uh, whereas building a nuclear weapon, as we know, is quite a, a different, uh, different matter. I mean, I think, if I can follow on from what uh, uh, Mark was saying, um, I think there are two reasons why we may be concerned about uh, what is happening in biology. One is the, uh, the greater threat of the bio-error or bio-terror with catastrophic consequences. But the other, of course, is a more directly ethical issue of um, what, uh, uh, what can be done with genetic modification, what should be done, um, and the ethics of stem cell research, etc. And here, um, as Mark said, um, the scientists um, uh, have a role in saying what can be done and what is actually involved, uh, but it is for the wider public mediated by politicians to decide what the regulatory regime should be, although, of course, it may be hard to enforce that internationally. And uh, to take a particular case of um, uh, embryo research, where the UK had a quite good regulatory framework because the scientists engaged with the politicians early on. Things went quite well. Um, But, of course, we know very well that the Catholic Church um, uh, is against doing anything with embryos because they think that the sole... Talk this about soul comes in at, at conception, in effect. Um, and uh, of course, if they think that, there's no scientific argument we can use. All we can do as scientists in the debate on, say, embryo research is make sure that when people talk about a 14 day old embryo, they know what it actually is. They know it's just a little amorphous group of, uh, of, of cells and not a sort of homunculus or something like that. And so one can make sure that the debate takes place on the basis of uh, as few misperceptions as possible. But uh, if some people say, well, my fundamental beliefs say that this embryo is sacred, then scientists can't say anything about that. I mean, Martin, I agree with that completely. When that discussion was going on, we actually held an event at the Wellcome Trust at the suggestion of Colin Blakemore, which we sort of called Stem Cells and the Bishops. Mm-hmm. Um, and we invited bishops of various faiths um, and we had a very good discussion. And, and I think some of the f- 
misperception and in some cases false um, uh, science that was being propagated. I think that we reached a common position on the science but agreed absolutely with Martin's point that you then get to an irreconcilable point of difference as to whether something happens at the point of fertilization. But it was interesting because the Bishop of Southwark explained to me at the time that actually in terms of Catholic thinking this was not a long-standing position and that actually there had been a period in Catholic theology when it was thought that the soul entered, the, there was a quickening at a later stage in embryonic development. So, I mean, there's nothing even immutable necessarily in the religious thinking, but that's the plural society point, that actually we're never going to persuade everyone and nor should we attempt to. It is for a democratic society to decide what to do. Well, I think you'll agree they've both uh, already laid out their stalls in a, a really accessible and uh, challenging and fascinating way. Would anybody like to bring up, it? by all means? Sorry, I just wanted to, to follow up on, uh, on, on that point. I, I absolutely agree with the position that you've both taken that you know, there shouldn't be any limits to scientific knowledge, but then it should be for society to, to decide. <laughs> how that is used. I'd just be interested for your thoughts on whether there are any prerequisites in the level of scientific knowledge that you need society to have to be able to have a sensible debate and whether it's sufficient for that debate to happen in the House of Lords and at the Wellcome Trust or how much it needs to be a mass debate. Martin. Well, it needs to be as wide as possible and um, obviously one of the problems is that uh, if the public doesn't know the difference between a proton and a protein, uh, and such like, uh, then the debate won't get above Daily Mail slogans. Um, and uh, so th th they won't be constructive. So I think people well, do... How are you going to address that? Well, I think um, uh, pe people do need some feel for science. I mean, this is partly a matter of a formal education. Uh, it is helped a lot by the media with some excellent TV programmes uh, on these matters. Um, but I think um, um, scientists shouldn't be too... Uh, um, despondent about science, because I mean, it's, it's true, we do say that people are ignorant of science, but I think they're not more ignorant of science than other things. I mean, for instance, they're too ignorant of science to have a serious debate about uh, some of these issues that we're discussing t this evening, but um, an equal number of people um, can't find um, Syria or Korea on the map, don't know anything about the history of the Balkans, don't know the history of our own country, and that ignorance is just as deep in my opinion and just as deplorable and just as much an inhibition to prop up democratic debate about important political questions. So um, there are issues in science um, that the public needs to know more about but scientists shouldn't uh, grumble specially because uh, I think uh, I uh, in fact am amazed by how much public interest there is in um, the kind of work I do and in the LHC and other seemingly entirely irrelevant things. It's amazing how much interest there is. So we shouldn't complain specially, but we do need a, a better public feel. And one particular thing where um, the public uh, um, needs to be clearer in its thinking is regarding relative risks. Because it's certainly the case that uh, um, the public frets unduly about some risks, like tiny concentrations of carcinogens in food, the risk of rail accidents and things like that. But the same public is in denial about other kinds of risks that they should care a lot more about. In particular, the kind of risks, like we've been talking about, which are low probability but huge impact. And the seriousness of a risk is got by multiplying the probability by its impact. And there are lots of risks 
bio error and bioterror being among them, in my view, which we need to worry more about than we do, whereas the public is unduly uh, fussy about some other much smaller risks. Aren't you intrigued that the, that the Higgs boson has made it onto the front page of the Daily Mail? I am. I'm very surprised by this, actually, um, and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm delighted. And uh, um, uh, how much they actually understand about it, I don't know. But I think the the fact that the uh, wide public is interested in the uh, the fact that scientists are continuing to uh, probe the bedrock nature of space and time, which is, after all, what they're trying to do at, at CERN and what we're trying to do in astronomy, I think that is gratifying. Sorry. Is that what? Sorry? Oh, right. <laughs> right, yes, yes. Mm, yeah. yes. Yes, yes. I've got a question on this very point, actually. I was hoping, with mass appearing twice in the title, I was hoping yes. maybe it goes back to your vignette at the beginning, John, about the Higgs boson, mm -hmm. and wary of the fact that none of you are particle physicists, but I was wondering if any of you could explain how a Higgs boson is the source of mass. I've never... I can't get my... Uh, I'm not going to try to do that. No, no. Uh, uh, no, no. But we can agree yeah, that it, it, it shapes yeah, yeah. mass. Yeah, yeah, yes. If I, it exists. Yes, yes. I, I think uh, uh, all I would say, if I got a blackboard, etc., I could do a bit more. But all I could say is that um, in the concept we now have of the various fundamental particles that make up atoms, etc., um, there is this missing piece of the jigsaw, um, and uh, uh, it is predicted to exist and ought to be findable by this particular accelerator. So if it is found, then that will confirm the ideas people so far have. If it is not found, that will be equally exciting in a way because it will mean we will have to think further. So it's really uh, looking for a key piece of the jigsaw which is missing and to see if it's there or if we have to uh, um, completely reconstitute all the pieces. Um, and in three months we're going to know, uh, roughly, think, three or four months. Are, yes, um, and, and I think um, uh, it's, it's been done by this sort of huge machine, and I think it's important to bear in mind that in that particular area of science, and indeed in the kind of science I do, um, space and uh, big telescopes, the technology is what really deserves the credit. Uh, the theory is important, but we are no wiser than Aristotle was, you know, and we've got a bit further. But it's because of the new technology that we can do all these things, and that's why uh, we need these big, expensive facilities. And, of course, um, one is often um, berated with a huge amount of money spent on the LHC. And I would like to put that into proportion before someone asks about this, um, as, as they may well, because we're, we have figures of several billion uh, euros spent on it. Um, but um, uh, what's actually happening is that this is a huge European, indeed global collaboration. And uh, all the people interested in this subject have pooled their resources for 10 or even 20 years to build this one huge machine. And the actual resources spent on it by us in this country amount to about 2% of the amount we're spending on science. It's about uh, between 60 or 80 million pounds a year. A year. Um, and so I think uh, uh, if you look at it that way, I think most people would say that to continue uh, the quest that started with Democritus and went on through, uh, uh, through Newton and uh, Bohr and all those people um, and understand in a more fundamental way the forces that hold the universe together and what it's made of is probably worth 2% of a science budget. So I think in that perspective, it's uh, not only 
something which is worthwhile. But also, I mean, as John, you were saying privately when we spoke earlier, it's an extraordinary example of international collaboration because uh, uh, this was set up uh, by uh, uh, a group of European physicists in the 1950s when physicists had a lot of clout uh, because of their um, uh, important role in World War II. Um, and um, it's been working very successfully ever since and has... Um, uh, uh, become the world's number one place. And I think this has a message for us as Europeans, and I guess most people are Europeans here, uh, that uh, uh, if we want to um, uh, do better than the Americans, then we have to pool our resources. And in the areas of science where we have to work together, particle physics and astronomy, then we do as well as the Americans. In other areas where we are not compelled to collaborate, we often don't build up as many peaks of excellence as the Americans have. And that's because it's not driven by defence. Well, maybe. But, but, uh, but of course, the um, particle physics is unrelated to defence. I mean, as you say, my yeah. subject of spa uh, space um, is an interesting area because, of course, um, uh, space research was originally driven by, uh, um, well, first, ICBMs for nuclear weapons. Um, and, of course, uh, going back to the 1960s, um, the... Uh, uh, um, superpower rivalry between the US and the Soviet Union, uh, which led to the Apollo program to land people on the moon. Um, that was really not done for scientific purposes. And, of course, um, that is why uh, when people landed on the moon, uh, there was no uh, motive to go further. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, and, of course, um, that was a long time ago. You've got the middle age to remember when people walked on the moon. The last man on the moon came back 39 years ago. Um, and uh, so when I talk to my students, you know, to, uh, uh, about the Apollo program, uh, they know that the Americans went to the moon, they know the Egyptians built the pyramids, but these both seem equally, uh, <laughs> um, uh, equally, ar equally arcane national goals uh, to which great resources were being devoted, you know. Um, so uh, th th uh, that is a good example of how science rides along on uh, something which is driven by some other imperative, um, uh, defence or national prestige. Mm. Uh, other uh, questions from the floor? Science is one way of knowing. It's only yes. one way. There are many, many other ways of knowing. And science, science is dominating our world. And it's, it's as if Buddha was nothing, um, American yeah. Indians were nothing, nothing as in 200 years of science. But before that, humanity existed. Yeah. Knowledge existed. We knew about it. So this yeah. arrogance of science, to me, is very uh, unsettling. You're arrogant, Mark. Go for it. Okay, so so I do not take the Dawkins hardline view. There are we are immensely complicated, and we don't have a full explanation. So in a formal sense, I'm agnostic because we just can't know everything. But do I think it's necessary? to invoke religion to explain that complexity. No, Einstein I... said it's necessary. Well, OK, but, <laughs> but, but, but... And Einstein was a great and wonderful man. And but, Higgs, but, Higgs person but, could have him in trouble. But, <laughs> but you know, the, the answer is we don't understand things. Is it therefore necessary to invoke something which in itself requires an explanation? I mean, invoking religion invokes another question, which is, as it were, where do the religious forces come from? So... As I say, in a sort of formal sense, I'm agnostic. If you ask me, I think it's actually pretty unlikely, but I don't know. Um, and do I think it's necessary to have religion to have a very good set of human values? No, I absolutely don't, because I think you know, the humanistic approach to values gives you a very, very good value set, 
which is at least as good a value set as any of the religious value sets. Um, and so, I, I, again, I, you know, I'm with you that we can't understand everything. And I, do, and I actually think um, that Rich Dawkins probably does us a bit of a disservice because he Martin is so hard is bursting to okay, come in. So yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I'd like to say two things. Uh, first, um, I think science and scientists share with everyone a sense of mystery and wonder perhaps more deeply, because as they understand more, it seems more wonderful than it does to someone who doesn't uh, uh, know so much about it. I, so that's one point. The second point is that our values can't come from science. They've got to come some other way. Um, but uh, and for many people, they come from religion. Um, but I think the, the other... Where do they come from for you? Um, I, I, simply by um, trying to learn from religions, but, but, but not having any religious belief. Um, I think, so I, I, I think we can learn from religion. We, uh, we, we can share ethics with religion, but uh, I don't have religious belief. And just to say one point, um, I'm not sympathetic to the kind of argument for religion which goes essentially, ya boo, you can't understand this yet. Religion can, so why don't you say God did it? Now, that's the so-called God of the gaps. And I think the, uh, um, uh, and I think the, 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 the modest thing to say uh, is that most of the things in the universe we don't understand. The origin of life we don't understand. Many things in the cosmos we don't understand. And so we should just accept we are at the beginning and we should work longer and harder and hope we will understand them. That's the modest line to take. One shouldn't give up and say we've got to bring in a religious explanation for things that uh, we can't yet understand. But Freud in the last volume um, argued that he observed his patients and he was unable to understand what he called the oceanic feeling, the feeling of connectedness. And I wonder, you know, you remember that Freud, unfortunately, was unable to connect with what we now regard as neuroscience. I wonder what you think about um, that statement and how that impacts on the way that you see the world. Do you experience a feeling of connectedness? Um, well, I, it all depends. There's slightly a question about, like the question we were asked earlier about the soul. Um, there's clearly a, a connectedness in the ecological, in the population biology sense. We are social organisms. Uh, we exist in tribes, and actually that does families and tribes, and of course that has the potential for both benefit and an enormous amount of harm, actually. Um, do I think there's some spiritual connectedness? Well, I mean, it goes back to the de debate we've just been having. I personally don't. I'm perfectly happy that other people do, and I can't think of any good experiment that will demonstrate whether that exists or not. Actually. Has that ever changed? Has what ever changed? That thought. That, that you're not... Uh, your values are not affected by anything beyond what you can see, what you... Oh, my values? No, no, I mean, that's, that's a different... No, I mean, what you're informed by. You're basically rejecting any sort of religious input into what's going on. I, it, I, I personally don't find it necessary to understand human society, the complexity of the universe in which we live. But does that mean that I think that we can explain anything or come near to it? No, I don't think we can. I mean, I think it's the point that Martin raised so... Well, which is just because we can't explain something doesn't need we need to invoke, as you put it so nicely, the God of the gaps. We've got four questions left, and, 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 and I'm going to take them all, uh, but we're very tight. Martin, you wanted to... Uh, well, two things. I mean, on the oceanic feeling, uh, we do have this... It depends a bit what you smoke, I guess, really. 
um, yeah, um, but, yeah. Um, enough said, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Neil. When the scientists in, invented the, the nuclear bomb, uh, they understood it, they understood the science, and then a number of them had an extreme experience of fear and worry about what they have done. Um, in your own scientific life, have you been involved in anything where you have understood the science or in a clinical context and suddenly had your own values challenged, doubted, or an experience of fear that uh, you might now be playing with something that you had no religious or social framework to cope with and you didn't know where to go. Have you had a personal experience like I, that? I'm going to take that as, as one, fear of what you've seen. My question goes back to John's observation of CERN, because I think we've also been studying CERN. And I think one of the most extraordinary things about CERN is that you have a whole global community of physicists working together collectively, using um, you know, uh, technology to do so, but actually working as one brain. And that's never happened before. I mean, CERN is the most extraordinary example of that. So, for example, well, you know very well, when they write a paper, all 500 of them put their name on it. That's n there's no other science that it's does that. It's the most intoxicating it is. I, I, uh, I totally and, agree. and transnational thing yeah. I have ever witnessed. The, so, so the question I wanted to ask, because both of you work in science which has a huge collective intelligence aspect to it, particularly around volunteers in the case of, in fact, both. I mean, the protein folding now is being done by volunteers, isn't it? You've got thousands of people around the world who are who are folding these proteins and the same with looking at new stars do you think there'll be a massive increase acceleration in knowledge because of this collective intelligence That's so can, can we have two brief answers to those two questions first have you ever been frightened by what you've seen and felt this challenges my values not in my own work, but I would like to say um, two things. One is that um, science is the one truly global culture. Um, and, of course, we see this uh, especially in a thing like CERN, but, of course, uh, it does cut across all barriers of, uh, of, of faith and nations. And that relates to uh, um, another point, which is that um, many of those who worked on a nuclear bomb did indeed devote their later years to uh, trying to control the powers they helped unleash. And indeed, some of the most impressive human beings I've ever met are people like Joe Rotblatt and Hans mm -hmm. Bethe, uh, who were leaders at Los Alamos, but they tried very hard to control it. So that's examples of scientists um, acting as global citizens and being part of a global culture. So uh, similarly, I haven't had an experience like that, although I think that the flu example I was talking about is starting to take one into that territory, actually. Um, but on whether physics is, is, has been unique in that form of global collaboration, I would argue that the Human Genome Project was actually very similar. That ended up with a whole volume of nature and indeed a whole volume of science with just as many authors. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about science at the moment, that the Internet... And I thought we were going to have a discussion largely about openness. So I think this has been much more interesting, actually. But, 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 but has... I think that the tools are now available to collaborate at a global scale, and I think that actually that is what we must do. And I, so I think that cultural collaboration is terribly important, but it does create some difficulties for academics in terms of, well, 
how do they get credit when they're part of this enormous team? And one shouldn't dismiss that. It is an issue. Right. The, the very final, Derek, David, and Mary. Had since the Second World War something called NATO. At some stage during this 21st century, there's going to be a passing of the baton from America and Europe across probably to China and maybe Indonesia uh, and possibly India. So should there be a NATO for science that helps us better understand the Indian, uh, Indonesia, China side of science? You talk about collaboration, but should there actually be something more profound over the next 20 or 30 years? Uh, so organisational um, linkages in a new world order. For Martin Rees, I'm Aries, by the way. Um, there's been Moore's Law transforming computing power, so the smartphone we have now has more power than the first Apollo rocket that went to the moon. I just wonder if you could predict the tools in your area over the next generation. What are they going to allow us to start investigating, to start doing, that we can't even do now? And finally, Mary a very um, small point thinking about the word mass um, as, a, as an artist it's a very loose term, a writer from a family of scientists and medics and I'm not a scientist or a medic uh, I, I grew up in a household where your, any statement you made was questioned, it had to be evidence based um, but actually I, I wanted to say seriously that I think a scientific approach to thinking a scientific approach to arts to politics, to culture is so valuable evidence-based questions, improving the quality of your questions and admitting that there is very, very, very little that we know. And I think if scientists have um, a role to play right now, it's to in encourage those thoughts in those people who are not scientists because there's still a mistrust and a fear of scientists, which is not the fault of scientists. Um, but I think that scientific thought and scientific process is essential to the way we live and essential to the way we think about absolutely everything else. So do we organisationally need some new structures to f confront the new world order? I don't think we do really because, of course, uh, uh, Chinese science is not going to be any different from European science. Uh, it's a common global culture. Uh, we have to accept that uh, a bigger proportion of the world's science will be done in Asia. That's where the world's intellectual capital is going to be concentrated in this century. But it's not a zero-sum game. That is a very good thing. And, of course the availability of the uh, internet, etc., does level the playing field and allow far more people to participate in science. We heard about uh, some of these uh, um, amateur projects. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I think that's really very good news. And on the issue of uh, uh, projections of technology, I think uh, if Moore's Law continues or something like it, then uh, for a subject like mine, where you can't actually do experiments, uh, it's going to be wonderful to be able to do much more realistic simulations. And I suspect that's true um, in other subjects. Uh, Mark Wolpert uh, mentioned this idea of simulating the, uh, the brain and its neurons. That requires tremendous computer power. So I think uh, involvement of more people around the world through the Internet and much more uh, processing power available to everyone for simulations. So, I mean, I, I agree completely, Martin. I don't think we need a NATO for scientists because scientists operate in a global... You go to any laboratory, any first-class laboratory in the world, and you will find a melting pot of people from different countries. That is the nature of science. It's one of the excitements of science, and it's one of the worries about the immigration question that was raised earlier, which is that we will do UK science and, indeed, global science an extreme disservice if we limit the ability of people to come from other countries. So that's a big potential problem. 
Um, on the question of whether we can apply rigor and evidence to lots of other fields, the answer is absolutely yes. And I'll just give you a trivial anecdote um, from, it happens to be from the last government, um, and that is that, not surprisingly, people are worried about the fact that, um, and it's particularly young men, but 20-year-old men go out and they have lots of road traffic accidents. And uh, anyone who has to pay the insurance bill uh, for a youngster, a young boy driving, knows what the quantitative effects that are on insurance. So someone had the bright idea that, well, what we need to do to solve this problem is that we're going to get road traffic, road driving instruction into schools so that if we get people informed and better, better, with better knowledge before they start driving, that'll reduce the number of accidents. And so a scheme was announced, it was introduced, um, but they didn't look at the evidence. And the evidence was this had been tried in Australia and it actually resulted in more accidents <laughs> amongst young men. And one can speculate what the reasons for that are, but one quite likely explanation is it just encouraged more young men to learn to drive. And since they're intrinsically gung-ho and dangerous... <laughs> um, and the point of that story is just to say that there are an awful lot of areas of... And I can give you lots more anecdotes like that. There are lots of areas of public policy which are amenable to the controlled trial, to actually rigorous study... Education. You know, everyone knows how to educate children. The trouble is, we all have a different answer. Well, actually, you can do a controlled trial in education in the same way as you can do a controlled trial of a drug. And a, a government minister once said to me, well, how can you possibly do that? Because, you know, if you know what... Well, we don't know what the answer is. And the principle of a trial is that you have equipoise. In other words, you do a trial where you don't know whether A or B is better. So you're absolutely right. I think we could have much more rigour in many aspects of public policy, but I'm not optimistic. <laughs> Martin, in, 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 a, in a sentence, what is the, the, the one thing you think you could discover in the next ten years that you'd love to discover? Um, well, let's assume the Higgs has been discovered. We'll <laughs> take that as a red. Um, but... Uh, uh, I think, and I suspect many people here would agree, uh, evidence for life beyond the Earth uh, would be uh, the most fascinating discovery. Um, I think we may have to wait 20 or 30 years, but then we may have enough information about some of these planets around other stars to know if they have a biosphere. And I think uh, uh, that will indeed uh, change our perception. It may carry our sort of Copernican demotion one stage further, as it were. Um, but I think that would be uh, uh, something which would fascinate all of us. Well, I don't think I need to tell you that from the absorption of the faces, from the complete uh, the way in which everybody has absolutely kind of come to your, to your table to listen, um, that this has been a wonderful session. And a wonderful session for people who aren't scientists. And it's been incredibly accessible. I'm a bit lost on folding proteins, but I'm going to check it out with <laughs> Martin afterwards. Um, but uh, just a very, very big thank you, Martin and Mark, for coming all this way. And <laughs>